to be a man after my own heart. That's what he said. David is a man, God said, after my own heart. But if you've read chapter 12, how many of you read chapter 12? Good, good, then you know this already. If you've read chapter 12 of the story, it leads to an obvious question here. How could God still call David a man after his own heart when David committed such terrible sins, including the sins of adultery and murder? I mean, if you look at the list of sins that David uh, committed in chapter 12, I I think he violated nearly every one of the Ten Commandments. I was trying to think, was there a commandment he didn't violate in chapter 12? And yet God still called him a man after my own heart. I mean, it's easy to understand God saying it when David displayed great faith by killing Goliath. Yeah, he looks like a man after God's own heart. And it's easy to see David as a a man after God's own heart when he passes up multiple attempts to get even with Saul. We saw that last week if you read the chapter. Yeah, that's a a guy that's not going to get vengeance against his enemies. That's, That's a man after God's own heart. It's easy to think of David as as a man after God's own heart when we read the Psalms in which David expresses his praise for God and his worship of God. But when you read chapter 12 of the story about this sordid affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah and the conspiracy that surrounded that whole mess, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time understanding how God could still call David a man after his own heart. I mean, did God fail to look ahead and see that David would commit such terrible sins? Did God misjudge David's character, David's heart, David's motivations? Did God make a mistake when he said that God was that, that David was a man after his own heart? Did God make a mistake? I think we know the answer to all those questions, right? God knew David would fall into sin, right? Because he knows everything. He's omniscient. Nothing escapes his notice. So God knew that David would fall into sin. And we know that God doesn't make mistakes. His judgments are always righteous. God loved, here's what I want you to see. This is so important we see as we go into this message today. You need to understand this. God loved David and chose David to be his son, to be the king of Israel, knowing full well the awful sins that David would commit. Think about that for just a minute. God knew what David was going to do And yet God still looked at David and said, that's a man after my own heart. Think about that for just a minute. A murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a cheat, a thief. What I want us to do today is to look at this sordid episode in David's life with a fresh pair of eyes. I want us to get a new perspective on what God is trying to say to you and me today through this terrible, awful moment in David's life. Maybe God God doesn't love us only when our faith is strong and we're living right. 
Maybe God loves us even when we're caught with our hand in the proverbial cookie jar. Am I saying that okay, John? I want to say it again because some of us need to hear this. Maybe God doesn't love us only when our faith is strong and when we're living right. Maybe God loves us even when we're caught with our hand in the proverbial cookie jar. How many of you have been caught with your hand in the proverbial cookie jar? Let me, let me take a, a, new, a New Testament perspective on this. And if you will, follow me here. Can the followers of Christ sin? Yes, of course. 1 John was written to Christ followers like you and me. And it says in 1 John 1.8, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So yes, Christians can sin against the Lord. Even the best of us are capable of awful things. Okay? Should, let me answer this question. Should followers of Christ willfully continue in their sin? No. No. 1 John also goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 9, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. When we accept Christ Jesus, we get a new nature, a new character, a new heart. And it's the power of sin is broken. We no longer have, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are now made alive to righteousness. And a person who is truly born again, let me say that again, a person who is truly born again, who has truly received that new nature, that new heart, that new mindset, that overcoming power, a person who is truly born again won't keep on sinning because it's simply not in our new nature to do so. It's like a fish trying to live on land. It won't last for long, will it? In the same way, if a believer is living in sin, it's just not going to last for long. Moreover, and this is the point I'm trying to get across to you today, that I hope you will listen to me and understand where I'm coming from. Christians can sin. It's not the nature of a Christian to continue in sin. But here's what I want you to hear from me today. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us as His sons and daughters. So when we go astray, the Bible makes it clear that our Father will confront us and discipline us in order to bring us back to obedience. I don't know about you, I had a good dad. And when I stepped across the line, he let me know about it so that I could step back over the line and get within the boundary again. Does that make sense? Hebrews 12, 7-8 talks about this discipline that our Father brings. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, God is treating you as His children. Are you a child of God? Come on. Are you a child of God? Have you received that new nature? You've been born again, repented of your sins, confessed faith in, in, in Christ Jesus. Okay, God is 
treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Listen, as God's children, we know that God loves us, and we also know as a result of that that he will discipline us for our good because we are his children. Have you ever experienced the painful discipline of your heavenly father? Some of you right now are in the middle of it. I have experienced firsthand the painful discipline of my heavenly father, and I didn't like it one bit. But I'm so glad I went through it because it changed my mindset about certain attitudes and behaviors that I had. And I was hurting the people around me and didn't even know it until he brought it to my attention and humbled me at the foot of the cross again. Without his discipline, I'd still be going along like a bull in a china shop, hurting the people I love the most. But through God's discipline, that area of my life has been brought under his control. You get that? Was it, pain, was, it, was it easy? No. Was it painful? Yes. But he did it because he loved me. And if you're undergoing discipline right now, let me tell you something. It's because God loves you, and he wants the best for you. And he's speaking to the best in you to bring it out. Let's watch this video, and we'll set up the rest of the sermon today. We saw in the video, and as we read in the story, uh, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David over his sin. But it's David's response here to the accusations. It's David's response to God calling him out, to God exercising his discipline. It's David's response I want us to look at. Because a lot of us today might find ourselves being confronted by the Lord about something in our own hearts and lives, something that's not right, some area of disobedience where God is trying to get our attention, where He's trying to exercise His discipline, where He's trying to grow us up and mature us and form Christ in us. So I want us to look at David's response when basically he gets called out. Second. Samuel 13, 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 25 says this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. What an awful consequence. Why do you think that was? Why do you think God exercise part of his discipline in that way. Imagine the stigma that young child would have lived with the rest of his life and the heartache that he might have endured. God was merciful. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. 
David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to, to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Let's pray. God, I love you so much. And this word has weighed heavily on my heart all week long. And so I entered this pulpit today, God. My heart's a little fearful. I know I'm speaking your truth, and I know I'm speaking as your servant. I pray, Father, for those that receive this word today, that they would receive it in the right way. That they would see this word proceeding from a heart that is loving and faithful. I pray, God, you'd give them ears to hear. This is a word that can transform lives. This is a, wor this is a word that can change cycles of addiction and violence and divorce, and suffering, God. This is a word that can change generations. I pray that those who are in this room, and those that hear this message, would hear this message that comes from your heart, a heart full of grace and a heart full of mercy, a heart that desires nothing but good for his people. Help us, Jesus. Help us to see what you see. Help us to understand it. From your perspective, we want Christ to be formed in us. We want to be your sons and your daughters, not just a name, God, but we want to be your sons and daughters in truth. We want to live up to what we have attained in you. Nothing less will do. So give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. Help us to walk in this truth, Jesus so that we can represent you well to the world we live in, so that we can represent you well to our families to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our communities. Thank you for this word and its truth and its power. Spirit of God, use this word in us to form Christ in us. In your name I pray, amen. Look, let's get right into it. So David sinned and found him out. It always does. It always does. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. What you've done in, in the darkness is going to be yelled and, and made known from the rooftop. You already found that out, haven't you? You thought you were getting away with it. Mama always knows. The prophet Nathan stands before David. 
David, the man after God's own heart, and Nathan lays out the case against, against David. Adultery? Guilty. Murder? Guilty. Treating God and His Word with contempt? Guilty. And then Nathan pronounces the painful consequences that David and his family will experience because of David's sin. David will suffer murder and violence within his own family. David will see his own wife taken from him and given to another. David will be humiliated in the eyes of the whole nation. I call this the aftermath of sin. The aftermath of sin. And the Bible talks about it often. I just want to point out one verse where it clearly states that there is a harvest to our disobedience. Listen to what Galatians 6-7 says. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. You will always harvest what you plant. Hosea talks about sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. This is the aftermath of sin. The aftermath of sin actually takes two different forms. And I want, I want you to think about this for just a minute. The aftermath of sin actually takes two different forms. In one form of aftermath, the disobedient person gets what they deserve because they are the one who disobeyed. That makes sense, right? Disobey, suffer consequences. We get that. Seems okay, seems just, seems fair. But in the second kind of aftermath... Innocent people suffer as a result of another person's disobedience. I call it the ripple effect. There's a ripple effect to disobedience. And that, to me, is the most tragic kind of aftermath when innocent victims suffer from the consequences of another person's sin. It's awful. Tragic. As God's children, how do we face the aftermath of sin? Whether it's our own sin or the sin of someone else, how do we as God's children face the aftermath of sin? And I believe that David's response is so helpful to us. And if you find yourself in this situation or may find yourself in the future in this situation or know someone who's in this situation, maybe you can pick up a principle or two from this passage of Scripture. Whether you're suffering the awful consequences of your own sin or another person's sin, David shows us how to face its aftermath. First, confess it. Confess it. When David is confronted by Nathan, his response to those charges against him is just really a simple confession. He says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. David Remember Saul a couple of chapters ago? Remember Saul's response when Samuel confronted him over his disobedience? What did Saul do? Excuses, justification, denial, blame somebody else. Not David. David simply said, I've sinned against the Lord. I have a feeling that David's conscience was eating at him the whole time. Confession is simply agreeing with God about what God says is true. Confession is just simply coming into agreement with God about what God says is true. It's an acknowledgement of sin. It's a confession that He is right. 
David agreed with God that what he had done was wrong, was disobedience, was sin. And at once, at that moment, I want you to notice, this is really, I want you to see this. This is Old Testament, right? Christ hasn't yet been crucified on the cross. He hasn't yet been resurrected, right? This is Old Testament. As soon as David confesses his sin, what happens? Nathan looks at David and says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Confession brings forgiveness. You get that? With confession comes this idea, I agree with the Lord that what I've done is wrong, and I will not do it again. Repentance. Change of mind, change of direction. And at that moment, at that very moment, God looked at David and said, I've taken away your sin. You're not going to die. At that moment, please understand, at that moment, God released David from the death penalty that was required by the law. At that moment, David stood before the Lord, forgiven and restored. 1 John 1, 9, we stand on the other side of the cross. Jesus went to the cross, bore our shame, our guilt, our sin there, suffered the full wrath of God, paid in full the penalty, our payment, the payment we should have paid for sin, Christ paid it for us, rose again on the third day, which proves that God accepts it. So we're on the other side of the cross, praise God. 1 John 1.9 says this should be our response. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Same God in the Old Testament as we have in the New Testament, guys, just saying Don't let anybody else tell you differently. He's a God who forgives. He's a God of mercy and grace. But it's important we understand something here. Listen, this is is what we've got to understand. Just because David's confession released him from God's punitive judgment didn't mean he was released from God's paternal discipline. That's a mouthful. Just because David's confession released him from God's punitive judgment didn't mean he was released from God's paternal discipline. Listen, this isn't too hard to understand. We have everyday uh, uh, examples around us all the time. I can think of plenty of examples where this is true. For instance, a pastor has a moral failure. Lord knows we have plenty of those. A pastor has a moral failure. God will forgive him, but the pastor still may lose his wife, his kids, and his ministry. His reputation, his standing in the community will affect the members of his congregation. Another example, a college student drinks, drives, and hits another car. God will forgive him, but without his car, the student may lose his job. Without the job, the student may not be able to afford tuition and may have to drop out of college, and the innocent person in the other car may spend weeks recovering from the accident. You see how that works? Just because you've been forgiven by God from His punitive judgment, just because you've been forgiven by God and won't spend an eternity separated from God, doesn't mean you you, you also escape His discipline. There are consequences to behavior. Right? You with me here? What we need to understand here is that God's paternal discipline His paternal discipline, His Father heart. He exercises that to correct us, not punish us. His discipline is intended to build us up, 
not tear us down. His discipline is intended to grow us up, not hold us back. I hope you understand this. His discipline is designed to show us how serious sin is to him, how damaging it is to yourself and others, and his discipline is intended to protect us from doing it again. Learn your lesson well. Y'all hear me? Don't you wish you'd learned your lesson well the first time? Some of you. Thanks. Yes. Hebrews 12 says this, but God's discipline is always good for us. I want you to read that little phrase with me. But God's discipline is always good for us. You don't sound like you believe that. I want you to read it and pretend that you believe it, okay? But God's discipline is always good for us. Say it one more time. But God's discipline is always good for us. Thank you. So that we might share in His holiness. God's intention is not to make us happy. His intention is to make us holy. He is forming Christ in us. He is growing us up into the image of Christ. And sometimes He has to spank our little fannies to get us there. I don't know about you. I need a good swift kick in the pants every once in a while. No discipline is enjoyable. Can I get an amen? No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, afterward, if you respond correctly to the discipline, if you walk the discipline out, afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Look, God's discipline is painful, but it is discipline that He intends to use to train us up to live righteously. God's discipline grows us up. It brings us to maturity. It makes us holy. So when you, are, you come face to face with the aftermath of your sin, the first thing you ought to do is stop and confess that sin to the Lord to receive His forgiveness. But understand this, there may be still, still some painful consequences on the other side. Okay? We're there, right? You guys with me? Because here's David's response. Let's, let's carry this out. The second thing David did here that I want you to notice is this. He drew near to God. He drew near to God. God's discipline can be painful. Our response to pain is to do what? Run. What did David do? He pressed in. Nathan warned David that the first painful consequence of his disobedience would be the loss of his infant son. Oh man, that had to be horrible for David to hear. And I'm not saying in in this place that because you've lost a loved one that it was because of your sin or somebody else's sin. We live in a broken world. I'm not saying that everything bad that happens to us, God is using it, you know, to to spank us. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that many times there are ways that God, painful ways God uses to move us in the right direction. And this, but this is what I want you to see. Instead of running away from God in anger and fear, instead, Dave, and, and instead of wallowing in his shame and self-pity, David instead ran to God in prayer and faith. You get that? What did Saul do when he got in trouble? Do you remember that from two chapters ago? Oh, <laughs> he ran, man. He just began to sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into his depression and despair. That's not what David did. Watch, watch. 
In verse 16, we see what David did. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night lying in sackcloth on the ground. David drew near to God. David chose to use his sin's aftermath to draw him closer to God. He prayed for God to spare his son. He fasted, giving up food so he could seek after the presence of God. He clothed himself in sackcloth and slept on the ground, not in his own bed, as an act of repentance and humility. God, uh, David chose to draw near to God as the aftermath of his sin began to unfold. He didn't run. He didn't cut and run. He didn't chuck and He stayed right there. Drew near to God. In this painful episode of his life, and this is where the Psalms come in. Uh, if you've ever read the Psalms of David, they're amazing. They give you insight into his heart, into the emotional state he was in, into the way he was praying in, in this terrible moment in his life. In this painful episode of his life, David composes Psalm 32. I just wanted to read a couple of verses to you from that Psalm. David writes and says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. I love verse 7. For you, Lord, are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Listen, he wrote that in the time, in this time where he's laying flat on his face in sackcloth, refusing to go to his own bed, seeking the face of God. You, Lord, are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of joy. David was pressing into the presence of God, not running away from it in fear. And self-loathing. You get that? What's your initial response when you find yourself in trouble? You cut and run? Come on. Let's get honest. What should you do instead? Press into the presence of the Lord, man. Press into the presence of the Lord. When the aftermath of sin begins, don't run away from God. Draw near to Him. And let Him become your hiding place as you endure the consequences that are coming. The third thing that David did, I want to point out to you, is he faced the consequences realistically. David faced the consequences of his sins realistically. Verse 18 says the baby died on the seventh day. And David's servants were afraid he would do something desperate in his grief. But David's response here is incredibly calm and reasonable and rational. Verse 20 says, Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. And then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. Listen, in the Bible, washing and changing clothes always symbolizes a fresh start. You get that? Washing and changing clothes always symbolizes a new beginning. Through God's grace and mercy, we can always get a fresh start and a new beginning because He is the God of new beginnings. He makes all things new. And instead of blaming himself, and instead of David sitting on his pity pot and continuing to wallow in the shame and the guilt of what had happened in the past, David instead goes to the Lord's house to worship God. David realized he could do nothing to change the past. You don't see a lot 
You don't see David doing a lot of looking over his shoulders, wondering what if, what if, what if. You can what if yourself right into the grave, right into another pit. It's hard to drive a car straight when you keep looking over your shoulder, wondering what's behind you. David went. David realized he could do nothing to change the past. He realized he couldn't go back and undo his mistakes. He couldn't change the fact that his baby was dead. But here's what he could do. Listen, this is what he could do. He could approach the throne of God. And he could worship at at God's footstool. And he could receive from God's hand the wisdom, the willingness, and the strength to get up, to get going again. And I'm telling you, that's where some of you are at right now. You've spent way too much time looking over your shoulder at what you screwed up. Get over it. You screwed up. That's back there. What are you going to do to fix it? What can you do to fix it? Nothing. You got today. What are you going to do today? And I'm telling you today, press in to the presence of God. Get His wisdom and his strength, and the willingness to do today what you need to do today. He'll take care of the tomorrows. you got to face the consequences realistically. Ain't nothing you can do about yesterday. His mercies are made new every morning. Get up and get going again. He's given you a fresh start. He's given you a new beginning. Man, it was so awesome yesterday. We got to go with Paige and help her find a car. So cool. And I didn't even have to spend any of my money. It was all her money. It was great. And afterwards, we went out to Cracker Barrel and we're eating, kind of celebrating the fact that Paige was, had, first time in two and a half years, she owned her own car. And she's one, she, she said, I don't know, I'm more excited that I've got a car today than I was when I was 16. And my mom gave me the keys to a new Celica. And I said, You, you want to know why? Because you thought you had lost the ability to have your own car the last time you wrecked one, and now you get a fresh start. There's nothing sweeter than a fresh start. Nothing. Nothing is more precious than a new beginning. Can't go back and do anything about that car you wrecked two and a half years ago. But God gave you the keys to a new one yesterday. Well, new to us. <laughs> Look, Hebrews 4.11 says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. You only, only need mercy when you're not doing well. You only need mercy when you've screwed up. Come on. You only need mercy when you're lacking and hurting. So that we may receive mercy and grace to find help, to help us in our time of need. Man, God stands ready. He stands ready to give you whatever you need to get that fresh start. But you've got to face those consequences realistically. You've got to let go of the past. If you've got your hands clenched tight, God can give you anything. You're going to have to let it go. Let the past go and move on. Fourth, stand on God's word. Stand on God's word. David confessed. He drew near to God. 
He faced the consequences realistically. And fourth, he stood on the word of God. He stood firm on God's truth. The servants were surprised at David's response to the baby's death. And when they asked David why he was up and eating again, David replied in verses 22 and 23, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept and I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? Realistic, right? I can't do anything to bring him back again, but here's what I can do. I will go to him but he will not return to me. You know what David is saying there? David is saying, I believe that God is sovereign over all the affairs of my life. I believe that God's in control of my destiny. God is in control of my son's destiny. God is in control of it all. And he loves me and he's good. And my son now rests in the hands of Jesus. Guess what? I can't bring him back, but I can go to where my son is because that's what the Lord has promised me. That's what the Lord has promised me. Stand on God's words. You see, David knew that the story wasn't over yet. He was just in a painful chapter. And he knew that this painful chapter of his story would at one point come to an end. And David believed with all of his heart that what God had said was true. That there was an afterlife. And that that boy would be waiting on him when he got there. And so as David continued through this painful chapter in his life, David just continued to trust in the Lord, and he continued to trust in the truth of God's Word. There's another psalm that David wrote. We're not quite sure when he wrote this. Maybe he was a shepherd. Maybe this was prior to the time that that he served as king. But we see in Psalm 23 a real special, I I believe we we get an insight into the the trust that, that David had in the Word of God where it says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, and this certainly was one, the darkest valley. I can't imagine a more dark valley than this. I will fear no evil. Why? Because, Lord, you're with me. The Lord has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Where's the Lord right now? It may be a painful chapter in your life. Is God still there? Yes, He absolutely is. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I love this last line. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This was a truth that God had deposited in David's heart. And this is the truth that sustained David during this painful chapter in his life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Stand on the Word of God. If you can't, if you don't know anything about Him, know this one thing, two things. He's good. Say it with me. God's good. good. And God loves me. me. Because right, sometimes that's all you got to hang on to, isn't it? Because it can be hurtful what you're going through. But God is good. All the time. All the time. Come on, God is good. All the time. All the time. All right, we got it. God is good. All the time. God is good. All the time. There you go, we got it. God's love to me. God loves you. Please. I hope if there's one thing you hear in this message today is that God's love never failed David. Was God displeased? Yeah, probably. Was God disappointed? Yeah, probably. Did God's love ever waver? 
didn't change his affection for David one iota. You believe God loves you the same way? Or is David special? Is David somehow more special than we are? I would say no. No. The Bible says he's no respecter of persons. He loves you to the same deep level that he loved David. David continued to stand on God's word. And David continued to believe that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is our protector, our provider, that God is good, that God's love never fails. These were the truths that sustained David's soul as he endured this awful chapter in his life. Fifth, I get to say it. Walk it out! Walk it out! Walk it, oh, you got to say that with me. Walk it out. I told, I told Andrew we're going to make up a t-shirt, and it's going to be with all the little slogans that we throw around out here. One of them is going to be, walk it out. Walk it out. I've seen too many people give up when they were right on the verge of enjoying their greatest blessing. It never has made sense to me. To win a race, you got to finish it, right? You don't finish the race, you don't win. you got to walk it out. Verse 24, we see that David walks it out and goes on living. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. Yes, it's in the Bible. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. There's like nine months of living compressed into this one verse. David marries Bathsheba. She's called his wife for the very first time. You know what that says to me? She got a new beginning too. He's a God of new beginnings. After the death and the funeral of the child, David found the grace to go on living and he continued to walk it out. Guess what? There was still a lot more aftermath to come. And that's what the rest of David's life is like. It's like, you know, the video described it. His own son rebels against him. One son rapes another daughter. It's crazy what goes on. But you never see David go down this same path of sin again. Because he learned his lesson. David would still have a lot more of sin's aftermath to go through. There's more family turmoil that lay ahead, and it wasn't going to be easy. I mean, David had sowed the wind, and now he was reaping the whirlwind. But with God's help, David got on with his living, and he walked it out. I want you to listen again to another psalm that David wrote. Psalm 40 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to our God. I think some of you are right there today. You've been in the pit. You don't want to go back down there again, but you're still facing the discipline. The discipline, you're still working through that. I want you to, I want the Lord to put a new song in your heart. Not an, oh, pitiful, poor me, why am I... Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. It's a thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace that saved me, that lifted me out of that, put, that put my feet on solid ground, that gives me a destiny and a future that I can look ahead to and know, and know that you're going to sustain me as I get there. Lord, listen, listen, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God has something good in store for you if you will face the aftermath of your sin, the consequences, and just keep walking it out. Now, maybe you're, facing, maybe you're facing the aftermath of your own sin today. And everything that you cherish, 
you feel as if it's slipping away. You feel as if your family has slipped away. You feel as if your home, your health, your career, your reputation, even your own self-respect, it's just slipping away and you're never going to get it back again. I mean, you've confessed your sin and you know God has forgiven you, but you still have to face the aftermath of your sin. What do you do? What do you do? Or maybe you're facing the aftermath of another person's sin. Oh man, some of you. Some of you have been treated in awful ways and awful things have happened to you. And I stand here and I want you to know it's the Lord sees your condition. He understands what you're going through. You're not blamed for it at all. You're suffering the consequences of something another person has done. And that other person may not even know about it. They may not even care about it. But you're the one who's hurting today. What do you do? What do you do? I think whether the aftermath is of your own making or another's, that David's response to God's discipline provides us some guidelines here. David's response provides us guidelines. If you're the one who sinned, confess it. If you haven't done that yet, that's where it starts. By agreeing with God that what you were part of was wrong. And at that moment, you can receive forgiveness in Christ's name. If you were one who has been sinned against and you are suffering the aftermath of another person's sin, please hear me. Pick up here at step two where David drew near to God. You have no sin to confess, but you have a God. A God who loves you, calls you by name, and invites you to step into his presence so he can bring healing. Don't run from God. Run to God. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Mike, I'm going to ask you to come up. Face, face the consequences realistically. Face those consequences realistically. Don't pretend they didn't happen. Don't pretend they don't matter. You know they do. You know the wounds are still deep. You know the bruises are still painful. You can't change the past. So you need to stop beating yourself up over it. You need to stop wallowing in your self-pity. It's time for you to let go and move on. Get hold of God's word. Stand on God's word. Some of you are just coming into an, a personal knowledge of Jesus who he is, you're beginning to understand the depth of God's love for you. Anchor your soul to God's truth. Let the truth of God replace the lies that you've heard over and over and over again. Anchor 
anchor your soul to the truth of God. God is sovereign. He is in control of your life. God is good all the time. God is love. God loves you even during these awful times of discipline. He's no respecter of persons. His desire, His desire is to form within you the character of Christ. His desire is to make you holy even as He is holy. And you can take this to the bank that one day, one day, God is going to make everything right again. So if you've been wounded and you've been bruised and you've been beaten up because of someone else's sin, don't take things into your own hands. What does the Lord tell us to do? Forgive. 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 And that final step, I think, is this, to go on living, to walk it out. Get up and get going again. Focus on what you have, not on what you lost. Let go of yesterday's bitterness and regret and begin to live in the joy, the peace, and the hope that God gives today.